that's on purpose or what's going on, but that's, I like that because now I don't feel like I'm singling somebody out if I preach to this side. And by the way, most of the time I'm not looking at anybody. I'm, I'm actually looking right over your heads, right at the back. So a uh, trick I learned in a speech class, if you're saying something kind of difficult that maybe somebody may not want to hear, don't look at them, look over their head. That way you can say, hey, I wasn't staring at you and singling you out. And that way they can still feel convicted, right? <laughs> it's a joke. It's a preacher joke. All right, for the rest of us here this morning, go ahead and turn to your book of Psalms, chapter 3. We're continuing this series, seven psalms for the season, and today this is one of the very first psalms. Now, as we get into this, we need to understand something about Christianity. We've talked a lot about theology over the past couple of years. And when it comes to other world religions, there are really three things that separate us from every other religion on earth. The first, of course, and the most important is the empty tomb, right? Muhammad's still dead. Buddha still dead. All the, all the Brahmin are still dead. Joseph Smith, still dead. Jesus Christ, resurrected. But aside from that, we also believe two other things that distinguish us from everything else. The first is every other religion teaches us to earn our way to God or to heaven. Paul is very clear. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast about it. That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Christianity is not a works-based religion, but it is a grace-given religion. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is unique to Christianity. On top of that, salvation itself, the, every other religion has a system of rules that somebody has to follow in order to appease their God or gods. And few guarantee an afterlife of peace, even if they follow through with everything. Surah 9 of the Quran in Islam, by the way, it only guarantees heaven if you were to die in jihad, which is fighting against the infidel or basically anybody they disagree with. That's what makes radical Islam so dangerous. Radical Christianity, well, you, we know what radical Islam produces, but did you hear about the radical Christians? Boy, they can pass out tracts. Kind of different, right? Many would have you believe that only the extreme Muslim believes that. And that maybe that's so, but Scripture, our Scripture, only gives one guarantee of heaven, and that is through Christ Jesus our Lord, through the grace that He offers us, our faith placed in Him. And the, meanwhile, the, the Muslim, the only guaranteed way into heaven is, is death and battle. In fact, you could be the best Muslim you could be. You could fulfill all five pillars of Islam and die. And depending on Allah's mood that day, you could still go to hell. You could still suffer and may not gain entrance into heaven. Same with Buddhism. Same with Hinduism. and All the religions that push reincarnation. You might come back as a cricket. You might come back as a cow. But it's not up to you. It's not up to anybody except how... The universe is feeling that day, I guess. However, Christianity is based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. The psalmist writes in Psalm 145, 
Yahweh is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will work out the desire of those who fear him. He will hear their cry for help, and he will save them. In other words, our salvation is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent on rules that we follow. It's not dependent upon legalism or what we would call religion. It's dependent upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we define that relationship by our religion, by our doctrines, and so forth. But the point of the matter is our God saves. He saves us. When we, we believe in miracles, right? We, we still believe in miracles. But you hear me say this all the time. And, and actually, it's uh, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon himself, who said it best. The greatest of all miracles is the salvation of a soul. doesn't matter what happens to the human body. We're all still going to die unless Christ returns. But the, the soul, the saving of that, that's the greatest miracle God does. So let's read the text this morning. And beginning in verse 1. Actually, we'll back up just a little bit before verse 1. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And then we go to verse 1. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice. And he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. And if there's one thing I think we, un- we need to understand from this, it's summarized right there in verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the whole point of this psalm. And we're going to unpack that as we go. But salvation is His to give. Salvation belongs to Him. We don't have a right to it. We can only receive what He is giving us. And before we go too much further, I want to be very, very clear with you this morning. We are not David in this passage. You're not David. I'm not David. We are not the psalmist here. I want to make that crystal clear right out of the gate. David does not represent you. He does not represent me. He's the king of Israel. He's on the run from his son Absalom, by the way, who has ambushed him within his own kingdom, even within his own home. Has anyone here ever been king of a nation and had their son betray them? Then you're not David, right? But David does give us an example here of how we take our problems and through prayer turn them into peace. And our response to that peace is to praise. It's to praise God. We do not save ourselves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our problems, our turmoil, our suffering, our troubles, we pray. That's the Christian's response. And it's not your last response. Corey Tinboom says, 
Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? It's not our last response. This, this psalm is, above all things, it is a prayer. Yes, it's a song. It's actually a lament. And we'll, we'll dive into what that means as we go as well. But above all things, it is a prayer. It is something that David is saying to God. And through our prayers, we are given peace. And from that peace comes praise to the one who delivers us. And we know that Savior as Jesus Christ sent by God. Because why? God so loved the world. He sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Everybody knows that verse, but this is what it's pointing us towards. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, like I said, this is a Psalm of David. A little background to this passage. It was written around the time, possibly even while David was on the run from Absalom. Absalom was taking over the nation of Israel. He was setting himself up as king. He was ousting David, his own dad, from his throne. And maybe you're not real familiar with the story because it's not one that gets preached or taught about very often. But as this unfolds, as this psalm unfolds, David is giving us his quote-unquote, his secret it's not really a secret if you write it down. It's been in the book for over 2,000 years. But he's giving us his secret of having assurance in the face of adversity. Now, this is the first of 73 psalms that's going to be attributed to David. And again, maybe we're not familiar with it. So this is really what's happening. This is what's the background of what David's writing this morning. Absalom, his oldest son, had, had been kicked out of the kingdom for a while for murdering one of his brothers. And now he's allowed back into the kingdom. And Absalom would wait by the city gates. And when someone would come in and they wanted to go to David for a judgment, David would be standing there early in the day waiting by the gate. And if someone would come in, he would say to him, hey, where are you from? What city are you from? By the way, if you want to look this up, this is 2 Samuel 15 through 18 where this happens. And I'm summarizing verses 2 through 6 in chapter 15. But Absalom would say, where are you from? And the person would say, well, I'm from Israel. I'm an Israelite. And, he, and Absalom would say, well, you know, I understand your plight. I understand your problem. You know, you're, you're here, man. Your words are good and right. But, you know, nobody, nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody cares what you have to say. You know, if you try to go to the king, he's not going to be available for you. But man, if somebody would make me king, I could really, I could right the ship. I think I know better than David. I, I can do better than him. And it says, so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. Eventually, he's going to send 200 spies into the town, into, into Jerusalem, and they're going to quietly begin to turn the hearts of the people even more so against David, forcing him out of the kingdom. Now, we read this, and we have to understand something even deeper than Absalom's sin. This is all happening because of some of David's own sin. When he took Bathsheba, another man's wife, he was up on his rooftop at a time when all the other kings were going out to battle, David stayed home, whether it was because he was lazy or he was just tired of fighting. We don't know. We're not really told. But he decides to stay home. And he sees this woman bathing on her rooftop. Now, whether she was doing it on purpose to seduce him, whether, whether we're never told exactly in the text, but David sees what he wants, and this is key, he sees what he wants, and so he takes 
what he wants. He's setting an example for his son who sees the kingdom and takes the kingdom. You understand? But David did something even worse. He murders her husband to try and cover up the fact that David gets Bathsheba pregnant. And he takes her in as his wife. And he's saying, hey, I'm the good guy here. Look how nice I am. My friend Uriah, and by the way, Uriah was one of the mighty men of David. He dies in battle, orchestrated by David, unbeknownst to everybody else but Joab, his high commander. And so he covers this all up, and the prophet Nathan comes to him, and, and he begins to tell him this parable, and he says, David, you know, here's this story, and, and David gets really angry about this story, and, and Nathan says, well, I'm actually talking about you. You're the man. And David writes Psalm 51. He repents. He he knows he's done wrong. But Nathan says this, God's forgiven you. He sees your heart. He knows that you're sorry. But now the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me, he's speaking on behalf of God, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So what we're seeing transpire, even as the background of this psalm, is David is dealing with the consequences, in a sense, He's dealing with the consequences of his own sin. David may have repented and God forgave him, but how many of you know the seeds of sin still grow? There are consequences to the sins we commit. You know, many of you have probably seen the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? One of, them, one of these criminals on the run, he goes and, and gets baptized in the film. And he, get, he comes back, he meets with the boys, he says, you know what, God's absolved me of all my sins, even the piggly wiggly I knocked over down in that other town. And the guy says, I thought you said you didn't do that. He goes, well, I was lying. And God forgave me of that too. But guess what? Still going to get arrested, right? He still committed a crime. He still has to do the time. That rhymes. So you know it's from, from God, right? That's a joke. God forgave him, but the seeds of sin still grow because David saw and wanted what he saw and took what he saw, and his son does the exact same thing to him. And now he's taking the kingdom, and David's on the run, and he writes this psalm, and he ultimately declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. Now we dive into this. The first thing we're going to notice is the psalmist's problem or his predicament. David is, at least now, he feels as though he's being surrounded by enemies, feeling outnumbered, in danger. And yet somehow, through it all, he's going to rest in the fact that God is the one who's going to bring salvation. He begins in verse 1 by saying, O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many, many are rising up against me. Notice how he begins, O Yahweh. Who's he talking to here? To God. He's addressing him by name. David knows who he's talking to. He prays because he knows God. He knows God's character. His knowledge of who God is is going to be the driving force of this psalm, as it must also be the driving force of our prayers. If you're praying and you don't know God, you don't know who you're talking to. There are many people who believe they have a relationship with God, and yet they know nothing about Him. They have no desire to read His Word, no desire to pray, 
or to gather with other believers. That is a relationship destined to fail. If you do not know God, if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior from your, from your sin, if you've not put your faith in the one who died for you, if you've not submitted your life to him, well, the truth is you cannot have the peace of God until you have peace with God. And that only happens through Christ Jesus, our, our intermediary. If you've accepted Christ and you still face troubles, you still face trials, that's normal. That's promised to us. But now you have someone going through them with you. In many circumstances, God uses battles and struggles to grow us, to build us, to strengthen our relationship with him. When a Christian faces adversity, James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now maybe you're in a place in life, and, and you've overcome a lot of adversity. And you face trials, and, and you're in a time, a season of peace. And you're saying, hey, you know what? I've got peace. I'm good. I don't, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Well, you better get ready because round two's coming. In some cases, round 11, round 12, round 47. You know, it, it's the way of the life of the Christian. We're not guaranteed an easy life. And maybe you're in a season where it seems like no matter what you do, everything falls apart. You've persevered, but yet everyone seems out to get you. You're like King Midas in reverse. Instead of gold, everything you touch turns to dirt. So we have to recognize the problem. Where is it coming from? Now maybe you don't know the root. Maybe you don't know the origin of it all. But you know what you're feeling. You know where you're at. So pour yourself, like David does, pour yourself out in prayer. And as David does this, he recognizes the problem. His adversaries are many. The Hebrew word there means they have multiplied, they've become too numerous or too large. Might I remind you who's writing this? David, the giant slayer, thinks his enemies are too large, too big for him. This is the guy who killed Goliath with a slingshot, right? This is the guy who is the the bane of the Philistine armies, right? This is the guy who, time after time, being chased by the bloodthirsty Saul, had opportunity after opportunity to kill him and said, ultimately Saul says, well, you're more noble than me. This is that same David, right? And yet now he's saying, now my enemies are too many. They're too large for me to handle. It's interesting that word multiply, the Hebrew word rabu actually is, same word God uses in Genesis 1.28 when he tells mankind, now go forth and multiply. It's the same word he uses when he talks to Abraham in Genesis 17. He says, I will multiply your descendants. But now, this is kind of a, a reverse fashion. Instead of good multiplication, this is, a, this is the enemies, the aggressors are multiplying and they are stacking up against David. And like I said before, this is a lament. And whenever you read a lamenting psalm, you should understand something. The one writing the psalm is writing and he's saying to God, they're attacking me is really an attack on you. Because I'm a faithful person. Or at least they see themselves as a faithful person. And they're saying, this is actually 
not just an attack on me, God. This is an attack on you. We see something very similar in Moses' life when, when they are talking of stoning Moses. God, he calls out to God and he says, they're talking about stoning me. The implication is that's just because they can't stone you or they would. Moses is the proxy there, same as the psalmist. An attack on God's people, we should know this from a few weeks ago, our, our mighty fortress. This is an attack on our protector. This is an attack on the one who, who claims he's going to save us. He's our fortress. And so our prayer becomes a plea for the sake of our well-being as well as his reputation. And in spite of the adversity, we still worship him. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart. And now David, the giant killer, the general, the, the king of Israel, now he's on the run. And as he runs, he calls out to, to God and he says, hey, they're rising up against me. This rising up means they're making themselves known. They're standing up. We might say our problems keep popping up all over today. And they're surrounding him. Now, God knows what's going on. God's not caught off guard here. He's not surprised like David was. But David still appeals to him. He says, Lord, we've got a problem. And so we go to verse 2. He says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Many are saying of my soul. Many, there's that word again. They're talking. That's all they're doing at this point. They're just talking about him. They say there's no salvation for him. We might say today they're talking trash or they're talking smack about him. They're saying something that's completely untrue. You see, David's enemies thought he was in a desperate state. They believed he had no savior, no salvation. If this were really true, David would indeed be desperate. But David points out their words is really not a mockery so much of David as it is the one who truly saves. It's not so much a mockery of the king, it's a mockery of the king of kings. There's no salvation for him in God. Well, there's two ways you can take that. The word salvation is the Hebrew word yesuata. It's also very similar in root to where we get this name, Yeshua. That's Jesus. That's, that's the name of Jesus. And it literally means deliverance in the battle. These enemies were not only aggressive as they attacked David physically, but they are attacking his very relationship with his God. They see him and they lick their chops because they believe David is so truly desperate. That David's incapable of saving himself. They know that. And so they believe God will not or cannot save him either. This is actually eerily similar to wordings used about a descendant of David, Jesus, when he's on the cross. The chief priests, along with the scribes, were saying, this is Mark 15, 31, he saved others, he cannot save himself. In other words, there's no salvation for him. They believe God had rejected David, and in the same way, surely, the Almighty has rejected this Jesus. The other way to see it is perhaps, perhaps they are trusting, or they are they are taunting David for trusting in God. As if they're trying to say there's no salvation in Yahweh because Yahweh doesn't care, he doesn't exist, or he doesn't have the means to provide deliverance. And yet David 
states, very matter of fact, what we know, well, salvation does truly belong to the Lord. And so we look at the psalmist's peace. David's peace was a source of frustration for those around him. David's peace, especially for Joab, if you've read the stories, Joab would often get very frustrated with how peaceful David could be in a situation to the point Joab himself becomes a frustration for David. But the truth is, our peace will often frustrate those who want us to be upset within the battle. If they know what we know, though, if they knew what David knew, well, we might still try to resist God's goodness, His faithfulness, but we won't know His peace. And it's His peace to give, just as it's His salvation to give. Verse 3 goes on, it says, But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. In the face of all of these antagonists, in the face of his enemies, David finds comfort in the character of God. Can I ask you this morning, have you found comfort in the character of your God? Do you find comfort in his goodness and his faithfulness? Do you see him and do you do you see him as a shield about you as David does? Because David sees God as our only true protection in spite of the enemy. There are many psalms, by the way, about God being our shield. Psalm 710, my shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tried. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 28.7, Yahweh is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I'm helped. Therefore, my heart exults and with my song I'll thank Him. The list goes on and on and on where God is seen as our shield. David is confident in God being his shield to the point he believes God's going to restore him to his rightful place. It may not be immediately, but eventually God has made him king over Israel and therefore God will return him to being king over Israel. He says these words, he says, he lifts up my head. We sang them this morning. He lifts up my head. This is an idiom that expresses restoration to dignity and to a position. Remember, we are in the Psalms. They are songs. There's artistry in their language. And we see this figurative phrase. It's like saying it's raining cats and dogs. When it's raining, you don't walk outside and expect to see calicos and corgis falling from the sky. Right? It's an idiom. He lifts up my head. We see this in other places in Scripture. Like when Joseph translates the dream for the cupbearer in Genesis 40, he says, within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. We see another descendant of David, Jehoiachin, is taken from prison by the king of Babylon. It says he lifts up his head in 2 Kings 25. This is flying in the face of the allegations his enemies are making about him. It's what David truly believes. This is his attitude as he faces his adversity. He embraces the theology that Paul summarizes in Romans 8.31. If God is truly for us, then who could possibly be against us? That's what he's getting at. Now to call God his shield is common, but it is highly uncommon to call God his glory. The Hebrew word, kavodi, it literally means it's heavy. It's used to speak of a person's reputation or 
significance. It sometimes gets translated as honor. Now what David means is that he has found his honor, his significance, linked to his relationship with the Lord. It's not his own strength that's going to save him. It's God's. David knows he's not turned from the Lord, and therefore the Lord has not turned from David. So while David's in full retreat, he knows that one day he'll return where God has placed him. It doesn't matter what his enemies do. They may try and lower his head. They may try to bring him down, humble him, hurt him. But it is God who lifts David up. It's God who has salvation to give. Now we read verse 4. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. David is emphasizing prayer. Church, I want you to understand this. You may want to write this down. We are never so broken, so beaten, so burned out, so busted, or so bored that we cannot pray. As long as there is air in your lungs, you can pray. In fact, it's evidence of our faith and our love for God and our relationship with God and a testimony of His faithfulness that we often find ourselves praying in the times where we suffer the most. It doesn't have to be a lengthy prayer. It doesn't have to be a powerful prayer, quote-unquote powerful prayer. Some of the most powerful prayers are only two or three words long. Lord, help. That's a powerful prayer. Lord, you know. Sometimes you don't have to explain. You can't explain because your grief is so big, so powerful, so hurtful. Lord, you know is all you can say. How about this one? Lord, save me. That's a powerful prayer. That's what Peter said when he was drowning in the, in the Sea of Galilee. That's all he said. Lord, save me. And Jesus, okay, pulls him up. It's pride that says, I can deal with it. I don't need to pray about it. And we all have moments like that. But David was praying. He's calling out to Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word, ekra. And it means he's shouting. He's crying out with a loud voice. David's in prayer. But now God answers. God answers David. God chose David. God saved David many, many times before. This is not going to be any different. Because when God establishes His King, He subjugates those who oppose His King. It was true with David, and it'll be true with David's greater descendant, Christ Jesus. God says in Psalm 2.6, But as for me, I've installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. God designed Zion, that's Jerusalem, to be the place where His people could approach Him, could come to Him through sacrifice. This is where David would pray regularly. And the confidence of David is not that God has answered his prayers in the past. It's not that God will answer his prayers maybe one day in the future. But it's the fact that God always answers prayer. He does. We may not like his answer. may not want to accept his answers. But he does truly always answer. And here God answers David because in the middle of his enemies' blasphemies, David refuses to be silenced. Instead, he cries out. He lifts up his voice to the God who can save him, whose enemies believe have forsaken him. Our God is a God who hears our prayers, who hears our cries. 
and who answers us if only we would call out. David was a man of prayer, so he understood this. And we have to know it too if we want to have the assurance that David had. We read in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. You know what David just said? I took a nap. They're trying to kill me. I hit the recliner. I just turned the TV on, watched football, spaced out. That's not exactly what he's saying. The Hebrew actually indicates he's laying down because he's exhausted. Or maybe even wounded or sick. As one would be in this situation, right? He sleeps either way. I don't know how tired I've ever been, but let's revisit this whole thing for a second, okay? David lost his job this one day, had his son try and kill him. Uh oh. We just got the new microphone, too. That's, uh oh. Start again. He just lost his job. His sons tried to kill him. He's lost his home. He's had to move. How many of you here, show of hands real quick, you ever quit a job? You ever quit somewhere? Yeah. Pretty much everybody who's ever had a job at one point has quit their job, right? How many of you have ever moved? Yeah? How many of you know that's stressful, both of those things? You ever have your son try and kill you? No. He's only four, but I'm watching him. Right? He's got plans. No. That's got to be stressful. If I was under that much stress, no matter how physically tired I am, I'm going to have trouble sleeping. David says, eh, I laid down and I slept. How can he possibly sleep unless God is sustaining him? David sleeps in retreat. Jesus sleeps in a storm. And when we are in Christ, we are able to sleep even in the war camp. Because even though we may be surrounded by our enemies, we know the one who surrounds them is even greater. Right? It's the story of Elisha. Elisha and his servant, this happens in 2 Kings 6. They're sleeping. His assistant gets up early in the morning and he walks out. And the, 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 the armies of Aram have surrounded the city they're staying in. And he comes back, he says, Master, what should we do? Now the text doesn't say Elisha was still sleeping, but I imagine it's early in the morning, we know that. So he's probably awake, barely. And he says, I'm not worried. He said, don't fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prays, and the servant's eyes are opened, and he sees horses and chariots of fire all around. Church, Galatians 5.22 reminds us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Peace is what David has that allows him to lay down. Peace is what he has when he rises up because he knows who holds salvation in his hand. How does he do this? Why does he do this? Because Yahweh sustains. Peace is how we keep it together when the world around us panics. Peace is why we can't be too worried if World War III breaks out in our lifetime. Because to live for Christ, to die for Christ, to suffer for Christ, to be raptured by Christ, when we are in Christ, we have peace. We have to. He gives it to us freely. God's the one who saves. God's the one who sustains. And if He truly is the God we believe Him to be, why would we not trust Him 
and His provision and His protection to the point that we too could take a nap. Why would we not rest? Well, often we don't because we want to be the one in control, don't we? That's not to say we should be bad stewards or anything like that. Well, I guess if God's in control, He can pay my AT&T bill. No, that's not what I'm saying. You're missing the point. If we truly do believe what the psalmist is saying, that God is our deliverer, not us, not ourselves, then we don't have to worry. Every now and then you see on Facebook someone trying to define anxiety or worry. Like it's, it's borrowing tomorrow's problems for today and things like that. And that makes for a great coffee mug and that makes for a nice t-shirt. But can I tell you what worry really is, biblically speaking? You may want to write this down. You may want to pin this to your refrigerator. Worry is you trying to force your will into a situation that a sovereign God has already dealt with in his time. Do you understand that? You are trying to outwill God on a situation that he's already dealt with. So we rest in him, we trust in him, and we should have peace as David did. Verse 6 reads, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. You know, many of you know my, my job history that I was a probation officer in Indianapolis and there's an area of Indianapolis, it's called the swamp. It's not a real swamp, but they call it that. And you don't, to hear one cop say it, you don't know what the swamp is unless you're swamp people. Okay, there's just an area, it's a rough area of the city. And I will never forget this as long as I live. We had this uh, kid on the electronic monitoring, and my partner said he kept having what's called a power fail. That means he's unplugging and plugging in the box. Kids would try to do this to hack the box sometimes, and she's thinking that's what he's trying to do. So we go to the house, and outside of his house are all his friends. They're his gang. And when I say these are young men, these are young men who are this tall. These are big kids, big guys. And she tells me as we're getting out of the car, by the way, they, threw the, they physically threw his caseworker out of the house earlier today. And I'm looking around going, where's my pepper spray? Where's my flashlight? Because that's the only weapons I ever had. And we go in, and uh, my partner that day, she was kind of stressful. And she starts to argue with the young man about why it's coming unplugged and all this. And, and it says you can't use an extension cord. And they start just screaming at each other. This grown woman and this child who is bigger than me. And pretty soon I turn around and everybody who was outside the house is now inside the house. And I remember they threw the caseworker out of the house earlier today. I'm a lot bigger than her. I'd like to see them try. It's not going to go well for us. And in that moment I was like, I, I prayed. I said, God, I'm surrounded by enemies. I need you to do something. And there's a grown man standing right here. And I looked at him and I said, are you the dad? And he says, well, I'm his stepdad. I said, we need to get everybody out of the house or this is going to get ugly really quick. And he turns around and says, all you people, get out of here. You're not supposed to be in this house. You know, he chases them out and I can breathe. And I looked over at my partner and said, hey, we, we got to get out of here. 
And I realize I'm looking down at my hands, and I've got my pepper spray in one hand and my flashlight in the other. I was ready just to spray and swing on my way out the door. And if she was behind me, I didn't care. I was ready to go. But guys, I've never been surrounded by 10,000 people, and I guarantee you probably haven't either. One on 10,000, that is dangerous territory. And yet David is there. And no matter how scary the situation, he says, I don't have any fear. I will not be afraid. How can he do this? Because he laid down confident in the same thing he would wake up again. In spite of what's around him, in spite of what's waiting on him, he knows, I don't have to be afraid. The interesting thing here, David's wording, these 10,000 people, the Hebrew word is aim, and it means they were considered family to him. Literally means paternal kin. These are children of my father. These 10,000 people. And they've turned against me. These are the people God has given him. The people he loved. The people he led. They are the same people David had put his life on the line for time after time on the battlefield. If we truly believe what the psalm says, God is our deliverer, not us, not ourselves, we can understand where David's coming from here and not be afraid. They've turned against him. They've ran him out of town. They've taken his son and called him their king. This tells you how hard this must have been for David, the deep wounds he's carrying. Instead, he says, I'm not going to fear them. They've set themselves against me, but I'm not afraid. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a sobering thought. If we're in his will, we have nothing to fear because he's good to us. God is a shield about us as he was for David. It's God who is his glory. It's God who will lift his head and lift our head. It's the Lord who answers his prayer. It's God who's his deliverer, and therefore, it's God who is his peace. So I'll ask you again this morning, is he your peace? Is he your deliverer? Salvation is his to give. Do you receive it today? And finally, we look at the psalmist's praise, verses 7 and 8. When you've been consistent in prayer, make no mistake, this psalm is a prayer. God will take your problem and give you peace in the midst of your problem. But your response is to praise. We read verse 7 again. It says, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have struck all, the, all my enemies on the cheek, and you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. If nothing else, this tells us of David's great confidence in his God. He knows and he trusts that God will not just save him, but avenge him. They may rise, my God will raise higher. They may pop up in ambush, but my God will stand up and save. It's the same root word, by the way, that's standing up. They rose up in ferocity. The same word we saw earlier, they rose up in ferocity, but our God will rise up in his justice. David says that though they may have smeared my reputation, they've attacked my very soul, God will deal with them. He'll avenge his people. That's why we don't take vengeance for ourselves. I've said this recently as well. David is very clear about this. Jesus is very clear about it. Paul speaks of it. It's not to say that we don't have a right to defend ourselves or defend our families. 
if the time arises, but we are not to seek vengeance. Some point to the fact the disciples had two swords in Luke 22. Like they were going to just go march out chopping people's heads off or something. That's not what the text says. If you look at it, it says, look, here are two swords. And Jesus says to them, it is enough. And if you really read that and understand it, what Jesus is saying in that moment is that's enough of that talk. We're not doing that. That's not what I'm doing. In fact, later, if you remember, not long after that, Peter cuts the ear off somebody and Jesus says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. We do not take vengeance. We leave room for God to do the avenging. I want to be clear, and I hope you understand me. If someone does attack your family, attacks your wife or children, you have to defend yourself. That is, that is the fact. Fathers and mothers should. It's a biblical fact. That's, their, that's your first ministry. Paul said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're not willing to lay down your life for your spouse, you might need to see a marital counselor. If you're not willing to lay down your life for your children, well, maybe they're just bad kids, but maybe you're a bad parent. But if someone calls your kid a name at school, you don't go to their house later and burn it down. That's vengeance. You leave room for God to do that. Paul says, never take your own vengeance, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. In fact, just before that, Paul makes it very clear, we should try as best we can to live at peace with all people. Now, sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes they want to run us down. Sometimes they want to run us out of town like they did David. But even still, what we do is we respond in prayer. Arise, O Yahweh, save us. In fact, saying, Arise, O Lord, is actually a battle cry for the Israeli people, the, the Hebrew people. It's a cry out for God to engage the enemy for them, defend his faithful people. We see it in Numbers 10.35 and Psalm 68.1. I'm not going to read it for time's sake this morning. But we read this passage and we might come away saying, It's a little overkill, David. God strikes their enemy on the cheek. God shatters their teeth. I mean, Imagine the dental bill, man. Why would he want him struck on the cheek? Well, this is a reproach upon them. This is showing contempt, humbling them. Job 16.10 gives us insight as he speaks of his adversaries. He says, they've struck me on the cheek in reproach. God pours out reproach on his enemies and brings shame upon them. He brings contempt as well as confusion upon them. And so David is drawing upon his past experiences and he's saying this very thing. God, do this again. Put my enemies to shame. But break their teeth? Come on, Pastor Jeff. That's a little extreme. Well, what we should understand is the imagery David is using here. Again, it's a lament. It's a song. There's artistic language. He's saying they are like wild beasts. And David has dealt with the bear and the lion in his lifetime. He's dealt with his share of wild beasts. The dangers in their teeth. Notice he doesn't mention their paws. It's because the danger was what they were saying. It was in their words. It was the malicious rumors and things they had said about him. It was with his words Absalom turned the nation against him. It was with their words, David said, they assaulted his very soul. They assaulted God and his ability to save. So we should pray for justice to be done. We should pray that God... Bring humility to those who would arrogantly speak against us. David's likely thinking back to the time 
God has broken his enemies on the battlefield, the Philistines, the Edomites, the Syrians. But for us, we understand this through the lens of Christ and his defeat of sin and the devil, the world, and death, and so on. We have to remember that to be in God's will is not to wish ill upon someone else, to want them to die or to suffer. That's not the way Christ would have us go. He says, I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It's not to say God won't deal with our enemies in a bad way, but we leave room for him to do it. And we pray that he bring them to repentance. We pray for their salvation because the best thing would be to take our enemy and turn them into an ally. We pray that God take their heart of stone and soften it. That God bring them the salvation he's offered us as well. And finally, we get to verse 8. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Salvation is a deliverance, whether it's from an immediate battle or in the eternal sense. It all belongs to God. But it's deliverance that only He can truly provide. Jonah references this exact verse in Jonah 2.9 as he prays in the belly of the fish. He says, As for me, I'll sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, That which I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to Yahweh. It's also said, by the way, in sharp contrast to what his enemies had been saying about him earlier. They said salvation, you know, that he, he, uh, excuse me, (laughs) there is no salvation for him in God. And he says, well, salvation only belongs to God. The truth is, only God can be trusted to save his people. David clarifies this. Salvation is not just for David. Salvation is for all of God's people. Those who would call upon his name. Those who would submit to him. Those who love his son. He's mighty to save them. He's faithful to save them. Because salvation belongs to him and him alone. And he's good and he's faithful. I'm going to ask the musicians to make their way back up to the platform. But from this psalm, what we can really understand is that God is faithful to save His people. No matter what they face, He will always save, one way or another. Because He alone is the only one who can save. And so we can rest. We can draw near to Him. Because He's never going to withdraw His grace. He's never going to withdraw His mercy or His love for those who truly love Him. As I was preparing this message, I was reminded of the words that Christ said to the churches in Revelation, to him who overcomes, to him who perseveres, to him who takes his problem, turns it to prayer and peace and praise. And he grants all these things to these churches. He says, I'll I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They'll never be hurt by the second death. He'll give them a hidden name, a white stone, or a hidden manna, sorry, a white stone and a new name. He'll give authority over the nations, the morning star. He'll clothe them in white garments and never erase their name from the book of life as he confesses their name before the Father and his angels. He'll keep them from the hour of testing. He will make them a pillar in the sanctuary of God. He'll write his name upon them. They'll sit down with him upon his throne. That's the blessing of those who persevere. That's the blessing of those who discover God's peace in the midst of the predicaments. We overcome through prayer as we receive him more and more into our life. And again, salvation is his. It's his to give us through his son to those who are faithful, who take their problems before him in prayer. Will you stand as we close and worship this morning?